Jim Morrison is said to have been able to correctly recognize the author, title, chapter, and page of a book from his extensive collection just by hearing a few sentences. His dedication and love of literature and the written word surpassed even his wildest fantasies of rock and roll. So it is with great reverence and honor that I open the door to the Morrison Library. episode gets started, I just want to come in for a short little intro to this. We're going to go out in the weeds, or if you want to uh, to, to say so, out, out in the cornfields here looking for crop circles, because we're definitely going to talk about aliens and documented proof that he, you know, thought that aliens existed. We're going to get into that stuff. This is going to be far out there, but I love conversations like this. Jim, do you have anything to say about this? Close it, lock it. Don't let any uh, mutants in here. Hmm. Well... I can tell you we definitely are letting the mutants in here tonight. We talk about Elvis, um, his magical powers. I think we mentioned his UFO sighting that he had. We talk about Charles Ford, of course, in this episode, who was a, had a profound influence on Morrison. As we detail in depth, um, we talk about Jim Sullivan a little bit, who had his own UFO encounter around the same time. We really get into the minutia of uh, some of Jim Morrison's the student films he did. There's something for everybody in this episode, so, so even if you... Uh, if you think there's something here, you're not into the alien aspect. There's definitely some other cool things that uh, Forrest talks about because he was a he is a grad and he did graduate from USC with a film degree. He talks about what it takes to get a film degree and stuff, and uh, it's really interesting. And I would recommend everybody just just strapping in because this is going to be a wild ride. Welcome to Opening the Doors, a podcast dedicated to the doors, psychedelic rock, and everything in between. I'm your host Bradley Netherton, and I want to introduce our guest today. He is from a little podcast called. Astonishing legends. We're trying to get them get their numbers pumped up a little bit. They only have about <laughs> eighty five million or so downloads. Oh no! Well, uh, not yeah. Total uh, listens. We we say nowadays. Total listens. Uh, yeah. Yeah. As as the numbers were counted before, as people might know, is that you can hit download and then listen to a minute and say this is crap, and then <laughs> and it doesn't really count as a listen. So yeah, it's it's total numbers of a certain amount of listening each each one. But thank you so much, Bradley. And of course, I've been on your other shows before. Why don't you mention? Which of uh, those episodes that I've made an appearance on? Yes, um, yeah, we we have done Colshack's uh, Loop. You've been on multiple oh, episodes yeah. of that. We did uh, we did some stuff with Rich Adam was over there. You were over there. Yep. Uh, even a very long uh, Halloween episode that was a a blast to edit. Actually, oh, yeah. five hours to edit, but that was <laughs> actually what, probably some of the funnest I've had interviewing guests was that whole yeah. uh, special. Uh, and and I don't know if I ever told you about this. Scott wasn't able to join us, so he sent over right. audio afterwards. And mm-hmm. he did, and he had a lot of alternate takes. He just gave me like one, like twenty minute audio file, and some of that is, <laughs> I still have it. It's it's golden. But uh, yeah, yeah. If, you, if you want to find Astonishing Legends, you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. A lot of great stuff. The most recent podcast was on the NASCAR lines, which was uh, yeah. fascinating, fascinating stuff. Uh, I think uh, you, even, you enjoyed it. 
the the other recent one was the doula, the death doula that I think was also really cool. Yeah, yeah, that started off uh, as the first one of the year, and I think uh, because around that time uh, Scott and his wife had a really profound meeting with a, a stranger, yeah. and it's like uh, rarely does that happen in your life. I don't know if it's happened. To, well, it probably has. You and and your wife, I think. Uh, have a lot of attractive, positive energy. So you meet interesting people. They, I think both yeah. of you do, and you have interesting experiences. And and Scott and I, you know, not so much, maybe a little more since uh, we've started doing this podcast, more, slump, you know, very small, minor, interesting things have happened to us, uh, not very noticeable, but, uh, but significant. And this was just one meeting where they were just randomly at a bar, started talking to the, uh, the woman sitting next to them and, and, uh, got entranced into this conversation. You know, Scott and his wife realized like, we should have her on. This is, uh, not something you run into every day. And, and we just got an email today, uh, from somebody who really appreciated having, uh, her on because as we've said, you may or may not ever have any kind of paranormal experience, but certainly someone in your life that you really care about is going to pass away, just happens, and and yourself one day. And it's better to have an idea of what to think about it before it happens, I think, is to start gathering your thoughts uh, about that because it can be a real shock, of course, as it is to everyone. But, uh, but in having an understanding and forming your own thoughts about it gives you some peace of mind, not only for the person going through the experience, but also for uh, you, the loved one. So yeah, though, so that was a, that was a nice one to, to kick the year off with, but we dove right into a mystery I've been aware of since uh, the mid to late seventies myself yeah. as a kid, which is a lot of what the doors music uh, was for me having grown up, you know, it's like, it's just one of those iconic bands. You got the Beatles, the doors, uh, the who, but when you're a little kid, you know, you're just listening on your transistor radio. <laughs> At least we did. Yeah. You know, it's not, we didn't really start collecting albums and getting the album artwork. And certainly as Bradley and I were talking before we started recording is that I was made more aware of them probably in high school by other friends who had started reading more of Morrison's poetry and, and biographies and, really diving around the mythos around the music. Whereas I was just listening to the songs and, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, I was really into a handful of them. And, uh, and then you, you start realizing, wow, there's a lot more to not only the band and the music, but this guy in particular. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And some of it you have, you've just introduced me to in your notes here that I had not heard of. And I'm, I'm uh, eagerly looking forward to getting to them. Yeah. And we're about to dive into that, but uh, I would definitely, even if you're not into paranormal, there's a lot of great stuff. Knights of the Golden Circle, I think, was one that y'all did, oh, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. is great. That was y'all didn't do Captain Kidd? Who was? Uh, well, uh, we did Henry, uh, Henry Plummer was one that was great. That's historical. That's right, that's right. We did the the Oak Island Money Pit of sorts, and that's uh, yes, yeah. Oak Island. What, that does touch on pirates a, a little bit. John Lafitte, I think, is who I'm thinking of. He was oh, John. Yep, uh, that was a two parter. That guy is uh, that's really a name that you hear, but. Uh, that's why we do the show is that there's a lot of things that we want to know more about and we haven't had the time to dig into it on our own or the, the predilection to, but once you start doing a show and uh, you need some research and you're not limited by any time constraints, certainly people who've heard the show know that you get to learn as much as you want about a subject and relay as much as you want. So it's a, it's a bit indulgent podcasting, but it's, it's a lot of fun. And, and again, we get to say what we want. So you don't get to do that on, even if you had your own TV show, you don't get to do that. 
Yeah. And this, y'all were really one of the first podcasts I ever really listened to. And you introduced a topic that I went down a rabbit hole and found a connection to Jim Morrison. And that is mm. the topic of Charles Ford and something we're going to get into yeah. is his connection to Jim Morrison. And, uh, because one of the books in Morrison's library was Ford's the book of the damned. Right. Right. Could you tell the listeners a bit about the book, the damned? Sure. Now, uh, just, uh, as a, uh, as a, a note of warning or caution for your audience here is that this was some while ago, but I did find my notes on it. So uh, we did do a two-part series on mostly about his life and how influential he was. But uh, for those of you who don't know, Charles Fort uh, started his uh, young life off as uh, essentially a journalist for a the local newspaper where uh, he was from and then started getting into writing nonfiction and he, the, the very first uh, works, or at least writing, of course, then would be his journalistic efforts uh, for the paper. Then he had a draft that was a bit of a memoir from his childhood growing up, as we might discuss here. It was a bit tumultuous. It's a real coming-of-age story. And he he wrote that all out, and it was an unpublished manuscript called many parts that I don't think it's really in print altogether, but you can get it from other sources uh, with big passages. So actually one uh, book that we covered, it was kind of our our anchor for the two episodes, is a, is a really good biography called Charles Fort, The Man Who Invented the Supernatural by Jim Steinmeier. So look for that uh, wherever you get your books. It's on as It's on Amazon. Uh, that had a lot of great information on it and had a lot of passages from his book, uh, his unpublished book, Many Parts. Well, that was, uh, again, that was more of his autobiography of sorts of growing up. And then he had a, f- a couple of other unpublished works that he, he w- had going. And one was called, I think the working title was called Z, just the letter Z. And I believe that might be the third book that wouldn't, wasn't really published in its own form, but then he worked on it, and that became his his first published nonfiction book called Book of the Damned, and that became a pretty good seller. Uh, we talk about the the uh, the story of how it kind of struggled at first. I think the when it was first published, the publishing house that he went to uh, kind of cut corners and used a fish based glue, and it came out right in the dead of summer. And so as booksellers had placed. Charles Fort's book in the window and the hot New York uh, sun was shining through the glass. It started to melt the glue and people just refer. It's like, oh, it's that that stinky fish book. <laughs> but it really had, well, actually, it did have something to do with yes. fish as uh, falling from the skies. We're going to learn uh, in a little bit. But essentially, yeah, it, it came out and people reacted to it the same way they still do to the paranormal. Either you hear a story about it and you kind of uh, smirk uh, when you first read the first few pages and you giggle, and then you put the, the the book back where you found it, and you go get some real, <laughs> to your opinion, some real literature. Or people start thumbing through this and go, oh my God, this is this is a lot of stuff I've wondered about all my life. And you rush up to the counter, purchase the book, tuck it under your coat, and go home and just plow through it. That's how it was described by Steinmeier, is the, the type of book it is, and, and the type of stuff he covered. But it was really essentially a, a collection of anecdotes, stories he'd received from newspapers, scientific reports, medical reports, anything he can get his hands on back in the day around the turn of the 20th century. 
And he started compiling these into different books and putting forth his ideas about them, not just presenting them as an almanac of sorts, but kind of talking about what he thinks might be going on. So that was Book of the Damned. And then he would have uh, several other books for that. But he's mostly known, I think, at least this is his seminal work. And then he had books after that that were still more stories. But what was interesting over the course of all the books he'd written, and this is the thing, he's hard to nail down. Charles Ford is about what's his opinion because he himself would say, that his opinion kept constantly changing, which is the nature of the paranormal. There's there's one good quote by him uh, that I liked, is that the, the fate of all explanation is to close one door only to have another one fly wide open. And that's what everybody says about the paranormal. You, you don't, there are, there are never really any satisfactory answers. You get a lot of data and then you just have more questions. As I say, it's like, well, that may be the case, but at least we can ask better questions as we go along. But yeah, you you know, that actually ties into the William Blake quote that the doors base their name off of uh, in the meeting on the mm-hmm. beach with Ray and Jim is it, there are things known and things unknown. And in between are the doors of perception. That, there you go. And exactly. so, man, I mean, that's uh, a, a direct tie. Isn't it? Yeah. It, it, and that's the thing is that I think as he went along, it's it's very frustrating. You, because you start to chase this, and um, as we talk about Charles Ford and his connection to to Morrison, is that you uh, you have to adopt an attitude about it. I think maybe, maybe Jim, you can tell us about it, but maybe Jim Morrison did. Is that you have to be at peace with it because if you wrestle with it, you're never going to win. Is that you're never going to get anything uh, that you can hold on to and put a headlock on as far as understanding it. And because as Charles Ford point out. The phenomena itself seems to change. It seems to, it's elusive. It's its the trickster element that is always one step ahead of you. If you watch the series Skinwalker Ranch, you'll hear them describe that as well, is that it seems to know, and I'm talking about a, a collective supernatural consciousness, maybe, uh, something emanating from the, the great Sargasso Sea, uh, in that it it knows what you're trying to find out and it, it'll give you some breadcrumbs to follow and then it'll yank the rug out from under you. And so with Charles Ford is that he was, he would contradict himself in the same book. <laughs> like, yeah, but you said that in the earlier chapters is that that's what you thought. And he's like, no, nah, no, nah, forget that. And uh, as he also famously said, I believe nothing that I've ever written. And yes, uh, which that is very Morrison-esque is yeah. I don't, I don't know if Morrison believed anything in the book of the damned, but he was just there to attain knowledge, get information, and then just, right. I don't know, because he was always about controlled chaos, about um, mm-hmm. social experimentation. And maybe the weirdness of the Book of the Dam is what intrigued him in the in the weird social things that happened. Because right. the people's reactions in it that Fort talks about with, uh, and uh, we'll probably get into it, the, the like even the frogs raining from the sky and the weird stuff like that, man. I yeah, yeah. But one person I do know who wrestled with it, and this is sort of, going along to one another one of Morrison's idols, Elvis Presley, man. He he yeah. was really into spirituality and he he dug deep in that stuff. And uh I think even and, and this may be a, an erroneous account or something and something that I've yeah. heard but I've heard it that one time they were him and his um the the uh the Miami mafia were on a trip mm-hmm. skiing or whatever. <laughs> and they wait, were going wait Elvis and the Miami and the Miami Mafia? Not the Miami <laughs> Uh, the, the Memphis mafia, the Memphis mafia, so that's, 
<laughs> Wait a second. There's another conspiracy I I need to hear about. I have to hear about this. But uh, no, that was the affectionate name uh, for his yes. uh, his yeah. posse, right? His yeah. I'll, his, I'll leave uh, I'll his, leave his, that his in because I, that's just too funny. That's hilarious. No, I I, yeah. I love that. But it's uh well, first of all, they all went skiing. I don't really picture. Yeah, I know, right? So I don't know how true skier, but yeah. So I don't know how true this story is. But supposedly they all went skiing, and one of them broke their leg while on the skiing trip. Yeah. And they were good. They went to go help him. And Elvis goes and he says, hold on, I got this. And he sort of said, I'm going to heal your leg. And he tried to put his arm over it. And he thought he had healing powers. Now I'm not an Elvis expert. This is not an Elvis podcast. So <laughs> right. you, just don't send the emails. This is a, a, a story I heard and cannot yeah. source at the moment, but that is the story I heard. And then, so supposedly they tried to help. They're like, okay. And they're like, they, they were going to help him. He's like, no, 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 let's see if he can get up. And he sort of tried to fake, right. fake getting up and walking yeah. around to sort of give Elvis the, I right. guess the, the, the impression that, yeah, man, Elvis, you, you did it. But there, and there's other, <laughs> other instances of Elvis seeing UFOs, which, um, I think, you well, know, it, it's, it's, there's a lot of entirely stuff. likely. Yeah, no. It, and here's the overarching, uh, theory that I've had. I've, I've said this uh, a few times on our, on our show is that I have musician friends, uh, of course, and there's some of the folks that have the best stories, not only about the paranormal, just, uh, in life. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Is uh, a lot of the friends I've, I've I've come across, and of course it's not for uh, you know doesn't apply to every musician, of course, but uh, they're usually fairly well read because if you're starting out and you're you're in that tour bus or the tour van more likely, or just a, a couple of cars and you got your equipment, you're tootling through and uh, uh, you're traveling from gig to gig in a uh, in a regional tour is that you have a lot of time to read. So uh, it's like my friend Kerry is one of the more uh, most uh, erudite and well-read people I know. And he actually talked to me about uh, a few Morrison things way back in the college days. Uh, but yeah, he's he's got an interest in this kind of stuff. And a lot of these guys, uh, yes, yeah, so not only are they well-read, but they they read interesting things. And then also you're in different places. And a lot of times it's old theaters, old uh, music venues, old hotels that they stay at. And as we know, if you believe in any of this at all, in the, in the paranormal, a lot of those places are haunted. So a lot of those guys have experiences of their own. And uh, I think, is it Proben Gregory? It's a, he's, he's on uh, social media, a uh, singer-songwriter, and uh, has a lot of great stories of his own, and, but is kind of out there talking about it, uh, a lot of experiences. And as uh, Bradley and I were talking about it, some people seem to be magnets for that kind of stuff. They see more, yeah. more stuff happens to them. It comes to them. Uh, same people, it never really happens much to uh, at all. But uh, yeah, I think musicians in general, and that's why I'm not surprised it's Elvis, it's Jim, it's all these other famous musicians. And most of the time, they're not going to, you know, there's no cause for them to talk about it. There's They're singing songs. And sometimes it's directly related to UFOs. As another Jim has, uh, you tell us about that album, another Jim uh, talking about going out to actually meeting UFOs and he has a mysterious disappearing and himself. Yeah. You're talking about Jim Sullivan, his album UFO. So he ended up doing a whole album, like the UFO concept album. And right. he, after his second record was released, I, I think he even had a little bit of financial success from it. And then he left his wife and, and just sort of moved to Nashville. And uh, he, yeah. he was going to bring them later to join them. And on March 5th, 1975, his wife actually got a call Telling her he was all right, but he had no, but she, and she had no reason to think otherwise, and that he had only left the day before. But the conversation continued sort of cryptically, and when she pressed for details, the only response he gave was, "You wouldn't believe me if I mm. told you." Uh, and mm-hmm. she wrote, 
uh, and she wrote this. I said, Jim, what's the matter? Is anything wrong? And he said, forget it. Just forget it. I said, nothing. I'll call you. I just forget I said anything. I'll call you from Nashville. Yeah. And after days uh, of no check-in, uh, they began calling hospitals and everything. They never uh, never found him. They found his car, I think, and then they it had been towed away right. about 25 miles south of Mesa, Arizona, I believe. Uh-huh. And he still had his 12-string guitar in the front, and there was nothing really ever heard from again. He just vanished. Right. It, from what I remember uh, reading, and again, that might be apocryphal, but he, uh, I think it was a, a Volkswagen uh, Beetle, uh, which seems appropriate for some reason. And he had driven out to a spot, kind of a remote location in the desert. And he just had his guitar. That's all they found is his guitar. And they found the door open and footsteps leading out into the desert. And and again, I I would rather this be true than uh, that he just just you know fell into a you know crevasse or between a, a couple of boulders or a gully and was washed away or something. But you know didn't just have a natural end. But they say that the footprints just stopped. Now who knows? That could be yeah. uh, the wind blowing it away. Could be a a wash of water suddenly. But the other the other strange thing is that everybody who knew him said like. Well, no, if he was going to walk out, like just go sit on a rock and think for a while and place, he would take his guitar. He oh, never yeah, yeah. left his, he would never leave his guitar in the car. You know, and people say that all the time. Well, he, they would never do this. And you don't really know uh, because you don't know what the situation is at the time. But uh, in that case, uh, anybody who knew him just said it was odd that it sounded like he pulled over, saw something, went to go check it out, thinking he would be coming back to the car and just didn't. So there yeah. you go. But uh, pretty pretty weird, but that album was released in 1969. And do you know if he knew Morrison? I don't. So I don't think he did. From everything, okay, it seems like they ran sort of in different circles, right? Um, right, right. So I don't know if they did. And somebody could, if you have any information, y'all can email me. I'll give that information out at the end if you have anything like that. Yeah. But I don't believe they did. Um, and and I think this goes back. Me and Mark DeWoodziak were talking. Mark DeWoodziak, he's eventually going to yeah, be on yeah. to talk about some television. He's a television and film critic of forty plus years, uh, very decorated. Just released a, a book, came out Valentine's Day on Edgar mm-hmm. Allan Poe. That's uh, oh, a great cool. read. Yeah. But he talks about he's big into theater and and he's done a lot of theater and just talking about the emotion and stuff. Because a lot of especially these early shows were done um, in different theaters across the country, as you said. And just the emotion that pours out that is poured into mm-hmm. the theater. Cause all of this is emotion based. And and I think that's where if we're talking and, and I'm already jumping the shark, I guess on the seventh episode of this podcast, but yeah. uh, I guess that's where this could tie in, man, where the, the energy that is exerted is sort of absorbed into places and is transferred to these people who are just so magnetic to it. Like you talked about, like Morrison um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, like Sullivan possibly. And, and all these people, even Jimi Hendrix talked about his UFO experiences, but you know, all this energy maybe, I don't know, leads them to be contacted by extraterrestrials. I'm, I'm not really sure how that works or if any of that's, <laughs> if you believe any of this yeah. at all, as, as I'm sure you'll hear on Astonishing Legends, man, but I don't know. Well, you know, something that I think is a, a possibility is that a lot of times you'll see famous people or people who eventually become famous in either, you know, movies and TV or music will have bumped into each other back when they weren't famous. And I think there's something to that. It's like, yeah. uh, <laughs> like in one case, the famous surrealistic filmmaker, David Lynch, was a roommate of Peter Wolf from the Jay Giles Band. 
Oh, okay. Back in college, and I, I can't remember if it was art school, but they were uh, they were roommates. So that's uh, that's kind of strange. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones was roommates with Al Gore at their college. You'll see a lot of a lot of actors, of course, as they come to Hollywood and they have no money. They're bunking up with other actors, and some make it big, and then it's not such a stretch that. Uh, several from the same, you know, boarding house, you could say, went on to become famous and so knew each other way before they became popular. And that's just, that's just part of it. And that group, but on the other hand, there's a lot of, I think, famous people, they cross paths on their way to notoriety and stardom uh, to some degree, and that there's something to that. It's maybe a, a type of personality that they have, some kind of spark or whatever, they'd end up meeting each other. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of strange crossings as we've seen. And, and you and I were talking about just the paths of people who crossed Charles Manson back in the day yes. in LA and the weirdness of the town. Just uh, there was something about Los Angeles in the 60s and 70s that attracted a lot of just cult members, musicians, actors, of course, because of Hollywood out here, uh, but just a lot of uh, new age gurus and, and this and that. And they all come flooding in and they set up camp because it, it was a... Uh, it was ripe territory. Not only is it good weather most of the year, and in fact, all of the year, you can do your, your outdoor yeah. strange things and have parties and whatnot, play a lot of music outdoors. It's very inviting. So you have great weather. You have a lot of people who are uh, spirited free thinkers coming out here to live. So it was a very ripe time for a lot of uh, social change and activity and a lot of turmoil as well. So uh, yeah, that's you, you got a lot of you've got a lot of uh, ingredients in the soup here, and Jim Morrison was part of that, of course, L.A. scene, and uh, you've seen the movie, of course, right? His his biopic. Oh, you, you talking about the Oliver Stone one? Yeah, what'd you think? Um, so <laughs> I, I think that it was at the time that I, I watched it, and I yeah. still think there's a lot of great scenes in it, and I think that that uh, Val Kilmer's depiction is is a fantastic to an extent. Yeah, with, with yeah. the material he was getting. And I've actually, I haven't been in contact with, but I have um, been given the name and I've, we and him are friends on Facebook now, but I mm-hmm. have not reached out yet of the person who actually wrote the screenplay because anyway, long story, basically mm-hmm. he wrote it and apparently it got reworked and, and was very different. Yeah, that, that happens. So, oh, yeah. and, and I've talked to Rich about that and, and I'm, <laughs> I'm sure it does, but I think yeah. that, I think that it, it, it depicts Morrison as very one dimensional and mm-hmm. I think there was more to that and it sort of makes him seem like just this big jerk all the time. And maybe he was to some extent, but I think there's more to the story than that. Yeah. No, that that's, that's, it's very common. I have uh, one uh, friend who is now a successful screenwriter is not rich. <laughs> I know another one, but he, uh, he, his first script that he sold was a comedy that I'm not going to mention. Not that he's bitter about it because you learned that that's just the game of Hollywood, but it was much different when it came, got produced because after you sell it, if you're not a huge name and you have something in your contract where people just know not to touch that, or or maybe you approve of a script doctor, because that's kind of what he became. He would get like five scripts a week and have to pour through them and kind of punch them up and polish them. And he was doing that for other people's scripts. And that's what happened to his first script. And then I asked about, because it became a, a well-known comedy and I said, well, hey, you know, congratulations. Should I go? Well, you know, I'm going to go see it. He's like, don't bother. It's not the movie I wrote. Oh. He's like, don't worry about it. So yeah, that's just that's just how things get made in Hollywood. But uh, but uh, but getting back to Charles Fort, it's uh, you, you know I think back then you could write. I, I just see his book as being lucky to be published back then. 
And I thought, you know, uh, he ran into, again, series of some notable people. One of his friends was author Theodore Dreiser. And there is a, a anecdote of a dinner party in 1931, January 26th, in uh, a snowy evening in New York City that we've talked about. Uh, because there is, uh, of course, uh, people, once they get famous, they have the power to contact other famous people and get to know them and then have parties where it's just <laughs> these notable folks. Yeah. Also at that party was, uh, yeah, Theodore Dreiser, Ben Hecht, big time uh, screenwriter of the day. And uh, they were just, uh, he didn't really care, Charles Fort, to really mingle too much, but uh, he could be lured out. And then he would talk about these uh, various things because... Uh, you know, what, again, why amass all this knowledge of uh, strange things and keep it to yourself? So you want to write a book, you want to do this and that. And he, and then he would do, uh, I think he would hold salons of sorts to talk about the his, some of his findings. But, uh, but he was an interesting guy, and he bumped into a lot of other interesting folks as well along the way. But that book that he wrote, uh, the reason I kind of want to explain to folks, because I think you're uh, wondering what was my favorite passage. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so one of my favorite passages from his book, Book of the Dab, is an explanation by Charles Ford about what does that title mean? What does he mean? What does he mean by the damned? Well, uh, and then I would ask you, Bradley, I'm not sure, uh, judging by how much uh, other literature that James Morrison liked, that uh, what his tastes were. But this is when you go to read it, it can be a little, I don't know, stodgy, but just a little difficult. It was written in the language around the turn of the, the 20th century. So it's it's a bit formal. It's uh, It doesn't really flow well to uh, modern contemporary ears here. But uh, but I like the style of writing. You, you kind of have to get into the flow of it, sit in it yeah. with, for a little bit, and then you'll start to pick it up. But he, you'll notice by uh, how he how he words things here. But this is the the passage that uh, explains his thoughts on what does he mean by uh, a book of the damned. Well, it says, "quote A procession of the damned. By the damned, I mean the excluded. We shall have a procession of data that science has excluded. Battalions of the accursed." Captain by pallid data that I have exhumed will march. You'll read them, or they'll march. Some of them livid, and some of them fiery, and some of them rotten. Some of them are corpses, skeletons, mummies twitching, tottering, animated by companions that have been damned alive. There are giants that will walk by, though sound asleep. There are things that are theorems and things that are rags. They'll go by, like you could arm-in-arm with the spirit of anarchy. Here and there will foot little harlots. Many are clowns, but many are of the highest respectability. Some are assassins. There are pale stenches and gaunt superstitions and mere shadows and lively malices, whims and amiabilities, the naive and the pedantic and the bizarre and the grotesque and the sincere and the insincere, the profound and the puerile. A stab and a laugh, and the patiently folded hands of hopeless propriety. The ultra-respectable, but the condemned, anyway. What I think he means there is that all this weird stuff, this data, this stuff happened. The the, the Kentucky meat shower, 
Yeah. The frogs raining from the sky, blood raining from the sky. These strange things that happened that people reported, uh, farmers' ponds, an entire pond disappearing with overnight or within a few hours when there's no other windstorm happening, no other explanation. Uh, some things that I, uh, and again, you mentioned this, uh, or we did earlier about this, the Great Sargasso Sea is that just a theory that he purported at one point was that there was maybe some place in the atmosphere or in the, you know, on the earth. Nowadays, it could be termed as possibly interdimensional, is just a, a portal of some kind, but he called it like this. His idea was the sea, uh, patterned after a strange patch of ocean that a lot of strange things happened to sailors crossing it. But that this this idea of the Great Sargasso Sea was maybe where all the stuff was going to that disappeared and coming from where it shouldn't have been coming from. And, you know, so one thing that we learned in our research is that, like I said, if you read the books and, and later accounts, uh, or that people will say, well, you know, the, the frogs raining from the sky, well, that's, you know, that could be explained by, uh, let's say, a, a whirlwind or a stream uh, over a stream uh, or a pond causing a... Uh, a, a vortex sweeping up tadpole and those get carried into the sky where they develop and then they they come raining down at some point and that's just you know that's the most natural thing is that yeah that just happens well then for would say well hold on so you're saying that as you know because it would be hard uh, for a small unless it was a tornado of course but a small whirlwind that was not reported by anybody uh, these farmers swept up a a mess of tadpoles then they developed into frogs fully adult frogs then rain you know i don't know how long that takes weeks then you know certainly not hours or day, you know just a couple of days then they rain from the sky at a, from a great height and they're fine now here's the other thing he would say is that these were fully adult frogs that have been reported raining not juvenile frogs or tadpoles the other thing is that this is also an interesting aspect of his theory is that it's not like these were in the high upper atmosphere, like just swirling around. Yeah. It's also freezing uh, and there's no food to eat. Uh, that the, you know, Suddenly it's freezing and that they fall from a great height because these frogs were fine. There was no damage to them as if you toss them off a 10-story building, which it would have to be much more than that uh, for people not to notice. And so these frogs came down. They were unharmed, undamaged. Uh, had been falling from a tremendous height. And he thought, okay, if they're not, you know, if they have no suffered damage from from a great fall and they're all alive and they seem to be a fine, healthy adult frogs, then they are being released from a space in, uh, I wouldn't say the atmosphere, but just like it could be 20 feet off the ground. It could be 10 feet off the ground. Something opened up and poured out frogs. And then they're just all over the place, and there's no explanation. They just appeared, seemingly. But they had to come from somewhere. And to his point was that it, it's uh, something is happening because people are seeing these things. It's getting, it's not, you know, people's just imagination. They're just making stuff up to get tourism to their little tiny farm town. Something's happening here, and it's just very strange. So what is going on? And then he had the... Um, the idea, and again, he struggled and wrestled with the idea of science because science, not that he distrusted it, but he distrusted the people behind it because, again, they it, it just he saw it as very limiting in that they were like, yeah, it doesn't matter. Just yeah. don't, don't pay attention to the frogs. Like, what? <laughs> this just happened. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's like, well, we, we don't have any handle on that, so never mind. It's just, it, it's probably something uh, sociological with the people, you know, psychological. And then he was one of the first proponents of something that 
would be coined, uh, I'm just reading from the, from the entry, or, you, you know, Wikipedia, that uh, 1973 Drew University anthropologist Roger W. Westcott would define anomalistics. And anomalistics being the scientific methods uh, used to evaluate anomalies, something that, you know, any kind of phenomena that falls outside of our current understanding. And that's what I like about it. It's like, well, let's try and figure this out using the methods and means that we have. And that came to be coined as anomalistic. So it's like, well, why not? And then I think what frustrated Charles Fort, and he saw that as ridiculous, is that you did have mainstream science of the day back then just saying like, no, this is uh, this is not worth even looking at, because they had no answer, and therefore uh, you don't be caught without an answer because that uh, that tool of science should be used to figure out most everything. So, any case, uh, yeah. So he had a uh, tempestuous outlook on both religion, structured established religion, and science as well, and so he was kind of a slippery character in that sense, and that you he was hard to nail down, as I said earlier, even within his own uh, one book of his. Yeah. Uh, as having a solid point of view. So, but what, why do you think that, well, first of all, explain if you would, like what you think Jim Morrison saw in Charles Fort and why you think he was interested in his writing. So Jim was really into, and then this is something we'll get into when we talk about the two of them, sort of their similarities. Mm. Jim was all about self-education, something that yeah. that Fort really, and we can get into a little bit of that now, mm-hmm. because Fort, he re- really wasn't the best student, but he was smart enough through his own self-education that he, you know, he, he just was able to, to get things on his own and, and had, had a real independence, you know, he's real independent. And Morrison was the same way. He got in a lot of trouble in school, uh-huh. but, but he was, he was smarter, you know, and I'm going to say it's sort of smarter in some ways, objectively more than the teachers because they, he right. would, he would quote Nietzsche and he was reading Nietzsche, you know, in, <laughs> in, in middle school, you know, and mm-hmm. or, or high school. And he had this vast library of books and that's what he did a lot in his free time was just read and, and try to obtain there more you knowledge. Go. Yeah. That will say uh, same thing with uh, Charles Fort. Uh, the term I guess is autodidact where you, yes. uh, you're, you're mostly self-taught. He did, uh, of course, Fort did go to school. But I think a lot of the things, uh, you know, were from his travels and his readings, and he had a very adventurous mind and a very inquisitive mind. Uh, he was a huge collector in his youth of, I think he wanted to be a, like a naturalist. You know, he was collecting a lot yeah. of uh, bird eggs and labeling them and, and putting them on display. And small birds he would find, uh, de- you know, had them taxidermied and had displays. And so he was, that's part of his nature where he was a tremendous collector. And then like a lot of collectors, he gave that up after a while and just started collecting information. Yeah, because Morrison... Uh, and and we'll, we'll go ahead and get into the similarities because Fort, I was reading, I think it was one of the biographers, Damon Knight, I think, was talked about Fort's, mm-hmm. Fort's treatment as a child, that he was mistreated as a child. And there's been some belief, and, and I've talked about this on other podcasts, that Morrison was prob- could possibly have been subject to some, some abuse as a child, possibly mm-hmm. sexual abuse, you know, I'm really not sure. Mm-hmm. In Fort's instance, he had a distrust of authority. Much like Morrison had a distrust and authority, of course. Yeah. Do you do you remember reading about his distrust and authority, or anything particular on Fort's distrust and authority that he had? I mean, you mentioned it with the scientists is, is a great example, but right. Well, he, you know, he uh, again. If you read the biography that I mentioned earlier, it talks. There are a lot of great excerpts from his book, many parts. So you get a, a really good idea of what his childhood was like. And here's the thing, he came from a prosperous family, but he had a very uh, overbearing and strict father. 
And, you know, the other fuel on the fire for that is that he, Charles Ford, as a kid, was, I guess, a little bit rebellious. So he had a, a bit of a rebellious streak. He uh, liked to, he and his uh, his brothers, and mostly the uh, the middle one, and there was a little one who just kind of tagged along, the, third, the, uh, the three boys. And their mother had passed away early on. There was a stepmother. Uh, there was a nanny that they liked, but uh, she was probably the most motherly to them. But, of course, they would have uh, shenanigans, monkey shines, these these three boys, and they would get into trouble. And his dad, of course, didn't uh, – he had a very high self-image uh, that he liked to keep in the community yeah. because, uh, yeah, he was, uh, as Charles Fort noted, he was uh, a bit self-important, kind of a, a status uh, chaser of sorts. And he wanted to be uh, seen as respectable and successful and notable and this and that. And he didn't want any uh, shenanigans from his kids, uh, especially you know, these somewhat rambunctious boys. And and that's the thing is that they not got into terrible trouble, but they, uh, you know, they were left alone a bit. Like a lot of kids, you're you're left to uh, kind of go on, you know, deal with your own and and uh, just stay out of trouble if you can. And they, uh, he, you know, he came, uh, it was at AJ Fort, they came from a grocer, a wholesale grocer's family and so you know did fairly well but they were left alone in the the cans factory the canning yeah. uh, the canning and storage area uh, to just kind of goof off on their own and you know they would get up to their own hijinks and then they would get caught and and he was a pretty harsh disciplinarian not totally because you read in the book it's like look it's always that opinion of the kids like yeah, that was really unfair and it's like you you see that from the uh, the adults uh, and and uh, parents side and it's like yeah, but again, you 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 know you broke the neighbors, whatever you know, and try to yeah. try to get away with it. It's just it's that kind of uh, back and forth. But he was he was a very strict father who did dole out some corporal punishment, which again is not terrific, especially by today's standards. But back then, people were a little more tolerant of that, and you know, so again, with his rebellious streak and his uh, fiercely independent nature. He grew up to have that outlook uh, in his early young life and then uh, his his later life. And then when he was younger and he, he started to um, – when he after he left home and was staying, uh, I believe, with an uncle, he started writing for uh, the local newspaper, as I said. And uh, he started noticing that, like, you know, most of the star, – you know, the, the baloney stories, the <laughs> piddly little stories they had me cover, like, this is – who cares? <laughs> like, they were – you know, they were just like uh, the local uh, glee club is having a, a function, or the uh, the local fraternity at the college is having this thing, and it's just, yeah. So he he noticed after knowing what was going to happen and knowing a few of the names, he could make up the stories and not actually have to go cover them. <laughs> so he was he was getting away with stuff like that. It's like you know what, nobody's paying attention. Who cares? Like these are all just uh, that's just life. And he he hungered for more adventure and real life experience, as you uh, said in your notes, some currency that he wanted to put in his pocket from uh, travels. Yeah, yeah, that is a that is a great segue. And before before we get to that, though, I will tell you that uh, Morrison's father was also strict. He was actually mm-hmm. the uh, commander of all United States naval forces during the Gulf of Tonkin uh, incident. So, oh, uh, wow. Yeah, I thought, and, I, gosh, that uh, and the, yeah, there's a, I vaguely remember something like that. That's quite something, though. Yeah, there's layers to that as well. But Morrison would do, even as a kid, he would put on his Elvis records and turn them up as loud as he could to try to try to get the neighbors' attention. You know, try to rile yeah. up the neighbors and stuff. I mean, that that's just what he did too to sort of push the bounds. And there's a lot of stuff. I, people listen to this podcast 
probably already know some of his shenanigans uh, as far as cops goes. But, um, you know, you, you mentioned it. Fort, you know, took a journey, especially to the Western United States and even went to other countries eventually to what he said, put some capital in the bank of experience. Right, right. There you go. And that was what Morrison did was, uh, you know, he leaves, goes to Florida State, really didn't have a lot of, you know, he was a, from a military family who moved around mm-hmm. by force. Um, but right. when, whenever he got the chance, he went to Florida State and he wanted to leave Florida State, be it because of a, an incident at a football game, or whatever happened, if he got expelled. <laughs> Either way, he wanted to go to film school. That was one of his, always one yeah. of his dreams. So he hitchhikes all the way to California, man, and he enrolls. Yeah. Or, you know, if does he, re- here's another weird thing like that I've seen. It was like, does he register for, like, there was a sort of, did he ever drop out or did he register classes? Like, there was some uh, dispute uh, of that. So I'm not 100% right. sure. And, and, but he was in yeah. class and made some films, which we'll get into. But, you right. know, it was that journey to the West. And, and maybe that, that seems like a theme in overall literature too, the, the journey to the West. Well, it, it's, you know, it's, it's funny is that we were discussing some Masonic kind of symbolism uh, earlier. And that's always, I, I think, in, uh, your older cultures and especially with the, you know, the Masons is that, you know, you, or you bury people with their heads towards the East, towards the rising sun sort of, yeah. and knowledge is found in the ancient East, mm-hmm. uh, with the, yeah. with the great mystics and the, uh, the ascended masters and, uh, you know, the, the mystery schools. And so you, you venture East for the, for the knowledge, but I think going by the old saying, you know, head West young man, is that that's where opportunity is, is that it's, uh, well, especially mostly, uh, yes, in the uh, United States where it's all the frontier and it hasn't been explored by Europeans yet, is that they were eager to to venture forth to the West and to gain experience, adventure, set up something new for themselves. And uh, now when you're talking about the 1960s, it was still a little like that because you and I were talking about how you want to know how the how Los Angeles was in the 50s. Watch the show Dragnet where they're just going down Sunset Boulevard. And again, one of the fabled uh, hangouts for Morrison uh, on Sunset and uh, and so all the great venues there is that you'll notice there's not there's big patches of uh, no buildings there's it's sporadic and spotty it wasn't built up like it is now uh, another great when we're talking about all the weirdos uh <laughs> moving like your your Manson family moving out to the west watch the movie Archer with Paul Newman we're talking about and that that's a great mix and blend of you have traditional 1950s crime noir and a d- detective uh, who is now encountering the wildness of the 60s, where you have uh, these dastardly people manipulating cults and committing crimes for their own reasoning and just, just weirdness that is blending from one uh, old tradition into the new. And that's what L.A. was around that time. So you talk about it was a lot of promise, a land of promise for a lot of people who were, let's say, on the, the social fringes or subculture of prevailing America, where you had a lot of musicians, you had a lot of people into new spiritual movements, you had uh, people who wanted to come out here to be actors. And uh, and that's been going on for a long time. Manly Hall, Manly P. Hall, who was one of the founders of the Philosophical Research Society, which is not too far from where I live now, he originally came out in the 20s to be an actor and soon turned his pursuits. You get a few gigs here and there. And it's like, if you're not hitting it off, making a living, you turn to something else for survival. And you see a few people, uh, most people don't end up as Jim Morrison. You know, they come out here and they, 
you get a degree and you had some dreams and then you, you realize you need to make a steady living. And then uh, if you meet somebody and you start to have children, they need to be fed. They don't need uh, you living. And certainly there's a lot of people I know that, uh, yeah, they tried with kids just living out of a van and, and uh, going to different festivals and this and that, and that you can do that, but it's uh, it's not the most stable thing. And after a while, you get tired of van life when it hasn't been your choice. You know what I'm saying? Is that you want something more stable. So you get a regular job and you just, uh, you grow up and those are fond memories of going to those clubs, you know, the whiskey and different venues and seeing, imagine seeing these bands back in the day when they're just starting out and they're not quite yet legends. I talked about the spiritual leadership and stuff. The Doors, I think John Densmore, the drummer, and mm-hmm. was one of the, and, and uh, I think Robbie Krieger was with him at the time. They they were in a group called the Psychedelic Rangers in like 65. Mm-hmm. And they actually were, went together to a, meditation class and it was like for this new guy who had just moved out and not many people had heard of him the maharishi and this right, was before right. the beatles you know sort of blew him up mm-hmm. and and made him like this larger than life guy he was just in a studio in, in la and and they would go and and they were do, taking classes from him, you know these sort of intermediate small yeah. classes and they were the first people i, I mean i'm gonna imagine there may have been others who end up being going on to rock some rock stardom but they're like some of the most notable names to go to the maharishi before any yeah. other bands really ever, you know, did that. It becomes a thing. Yeah. Like you were talking about earlier, you you know, it's just, you meet other people, they're into it. It's like, well, that guy seems cool. You know, this Lennon fella and they're really into this guy. What has he got to say? And you go check it out and you have, again, that's where you don't have to be at your nine to five job wearing the white short sleeve shirt with a tie uh, every day. You can, you can have the loose schedule to go do these things. And that, you know, that's what uh, the life of a musician affords you a little bit. You might be a little loose and not have uh, enough cash when you're starting out, but you can, you can go do these things and check out different stuff that uh, is not of interest, let's say to the mainstream. Yeah. And Fort, uh, you know, going back to Fort on, and we, you know, we're talking about Morrison moving West. Another thing talking, we, we've mentioned the great, you mentioned the great, the great weather earlier. Mm-hmm. And that was another thing that got Morrison. He was living on one of his friend's rooftops. And he just lived on a rooftop. <laughs> yeah. all, all he brought was like a, a a little box of books and his notebooks and stuff. And he would yeah. write and, and sort of work on stuff up there. And one thing I found interesting about uh, Charles Fort was on multiple occasions, he would destroy his work and he wanted to mm-hmm. sort of start fresh. And I think in number 70 of the, of the info journal science and the unknown Ford actually spoke of sitting on a park bench at the cloisters in New York city and tossing some 48,000 notes not all of his collection by any means, but just tossing them into the wind, sort of getting rid of his ideas yeah. to sort of start fresh. And the friend that Jim Morrison, who, who the rooftop he lived on was Dennis Jacobs. And uh, in his book called Summer with Morrison, he wrote this. Uh, let me give you one example of what he was interested in. The collected works of Charles Fort, especially one called The Books of the Damned. This was an endless source of fascination for Jim. Fort's ideas that that we are being watched by something or someone led Jim to make the following observation in his senior thesis for a film class, some of which later became notes on a vision, which is, as I say, evolved into his poem book that he self-published, The Lords and the New Creatures. And this is from, from Jim Morrison's book. The Lords, events take place beyond our knowledge or control. Our lives are lived for us. We can only try to enslave others, but gradually special perceptions are being developed. The idea of the Lord's is beginning to form in some minds. We should enlist them into bonds of perceivers to tour the labyrinth during their mysterious nocturnal appearances. The Lord's have secret entrances and they know disguises. 
but they give themselves away in minor ways. It sounds like something that either of them could have said, you know, that's, that is maybe the connection there is that there is uh, one, that there is something going on that it, and it's elusive. It comes in, it comes out. It seems to have some power or control in just making us, uh, just messing with us. That's a lot of what Fort was thinking is like, I don't know, who knows what's going on. I think one idea that is, I I believe, expressed in Fort's last book before he certainly, before he shortly collapsed and and passed away in, uh, it was published in 1932 called Wild Talents. Uh, One of the major themes of the book was that uh, perhaps all this weird stuff that happens, psychotelekinesis, spiritual mediumship types of things, perhaps it's uh, based in a unknown but evolutionary trait of just human beings that because if you imagine proto-humans and and early early humans having to develop a sixth sense uh, or just a really highly defined sense that is unperceptible, uh, imperceivable, I guess, that like dogs or cats reacting to an earthquake, Moments before it happens or before humans can sense it, yeah. it's that uh, it, as an effort for survival or they, they pick up on stuff that's, that's seemingly impossible. Like uh, our, our cockatiel would start whistling uh, wildly because uh, before my grandparents showed it, because he, he loved my grandmother. So, but it would be minutes, like five minutes before they showed up to the door. It's like, okay, that's, you know, maybe they, he heard their car, you know, the, the distinct sound of their car, but that's before they even got into the neighborhood, you know. And so, like, how did he know that? But he would—he uh, just knew, and he would—he uh, would start going bananas. And like, how animals have these senses that perhaps these strange things that happen, like uh, like those wild talents, are because it's an evolutionary trait that's just developed, but only in a few certain humans. And most people, again, the the uh, the curse that humans also have is that you know we're quote unquote smart enough to realize like, well, that's not possible. You know, that's. That's all a bunch of poppycock, and uh, that can't happen. And so it's mostly denied by most people, therefore suppressed and not developed. But we uh, we all have moments of it. Like It's like uh, you get a, a, a thought of uh, somebody popping into your head, and then the next moment they, the phone rings, and it's them. These things happen all the time. And it's like, well, that's just a coincidence. But like uh, you know, Wart might say is that, is that, uh, is that just a talent? And when it comes to larger things, like what's the purpose of all this weird stuff happening? As uh, as Jim there wrote, it's at the command of somebody else. Yeah, and continuing with the, what Dennis Jacob, uh, Dennis Jacobs was writing about, and this plays into everything. Is uh, however, at this point, what is important to realize is that Morrison was about to burn something else other than his bridges. He was going to burn the notebooks. Now I'm the last person other than himself to set eyes on those notebooks, and I had no objection at the time. I regarded it as a man's right. I remembered as he set the fire that I had no qualms, no forebodings, nor do I to this day. He was crossing the Rubicon as Caesar did, and the pressure of necessity so visibly felt by both of us did not prompt me to protest. Only when the last book was about to go into the fire did I stretch out my hand. Don't worry, Jim said, misunderstanding my gesture. I'll just make new ones. Flipping open the notebook, quite of random, I said that I'd like to keep at least one page. Jim, if you don't mind, I just think it might be important to someone someday, like revisiting your first report card. I still have that page somewhere in my storage. Unless the gods have turned it into dust, I imagine there are many who would like to take a long, slow look at that page. And also, um, as an aside, I also think that uh, whenever Jim Morrison did this, and this is something you'd put in the notes, was talking about his senior film, 
uh, done by him at UCLA. I believe yeah. that all of his all of his films were burned by him at the same time. Oh, okay, yeah. So, except for one, which made it out. The only reason that was uh, was because it was kept by someone else. Yeah, but apparently one of his one of his films, or I th- actually I think it was a take from one of his films. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe it was First Love that was done by somebody else that was kept. But he he threw all of his films away mm. and burned them. And you had mentioned, I guess, based off the the biopic or do you say is it biopic or is it biopic? I've I've heard it said both ways. I always <laughs> I said biopic. Say, if it's a bio biographical picture, I would say uh, it's a uh, biopic. That's, that's what, what yeah, that's what I would say. <clears throat> Yeah, well, the the story, the anecdote that I heard again that that was my friend Carrie, who's a, a musician and, and a classmate of mine at uh, film school. He talks about a an anecdote, and I just remember this is from a long time ago. And it may have been one of the classmates of Jim Morrison, because as you know in film school, you show it to the class. So at least at uh, and, and each school is a little different in how they approach it. At USC, in your first level, they make you do five Super Eight films. And uh, the idea is that you you shoot these and then you you're not allowed to use sync dialogue like you can't have people talking in them. Uh, you can have music or you know you, basically you learn how to mix onto a cassette tape and you can play that as your film starts. So you can have music, you can have sound effects that are you know they don't want you really to sync them, but you can have uh, different atmospheric sound effects. Uh, you could have people talking as long as you're not trying to get away with a lip flap, you know, like you're you're trying yeah. to get them to speak because they want you to learn the art of storytelling without having to rely on dialogue. They just want you to be visual, which I agree with. It's like, uh, plus it's too hard to do. Like I said, it, and if it doesn't come off, if the recording's off a little bit, it's it looks goofy because, of course, it just looks out of sync. So you do five Super 8 films. Uh, I think that's Cinema 190. That's your first level of classes. And uh, then as you get onto the other levels, you'll graduate. I, I think in the second year you do, you have a partner and one does a 16 millimeter film. You're, so you're advancing, uh, upgrading in uh, format. The other one will do video. You know, it was rudimentary three quarter inch video. And then uh, you swap roles on each other's films, helping each uh, each other out. And then the, the final level is that that's the Grand Poobah where you have, uh, I believe, a 16 millimeter film, but like you have a bigger crew. Yeah, I don't think it's thirty. I'm not sure if it's thirty-five. I'm not. Uh, it's at least sixteen millimeter. Uh, but you, different people in the class will ap- then apply to different roles. Like, oh, I want to run sound. I want to be the editor. I want to be the lighting director, or the uh, you know director of cinematography, or uh, the gaffer, this and that. And you choose different roles. And it was it's uh, they pick a very few selected people to have one of their screenplays produced as a senior film, and a very select few five people get to direct a senior thesis film. And then it's very more, even rare if you're the writer and director, which of course everybody wants to be because they want to be Spielberg back in the day. Yeah. Uh, or George Lucas, at least back then. So that was kind of rare. And UCLA, I think it's, they have everybody do a 16 millimeter film. So the story anyway, just explaining the setup is that somebody in his class, and I would say the super eight films, you're showing it to the rest of the class, all five of your films and everybody has to watch them is that somebody has seen, there's people who are classmates of Jim who saw all his films before they were destroyed. Yeah. You know, minor in a shoebox somewhere and uh, maybe never to be seen. But one describes, it's like he's either walking along this ledge and uh, or the camera's pointed up at the sky. You don't really get a sense of where he is. And I don't, I, all I remember is that 
the camera goes from him and then points down to where his feet are. And then you notice that he is like many stories up on the ledge of a building, just walking along that edge. Yeah. And it's like, whoa, that it just gave everybody the willies. Cause it's like, what are you doing, man? Like <laughs> you could have been killed. It, but now that you say that he lived on somebody's roof and apparently didn't have a, a fear of heights that, no. uh, that sounds plausible to me, but that was just one description I'd heard and, and really nothing else about his films. So yeah, it, it, the, he was a big, and from what I've gathered, a big fan of of German impressionism, like the, the mm-hmm. that that whole movement. And and I, I can't say mm-hmm. that I disagree with him. There's some really interesting films. Sure. Uh, was it the Cabinet of uh, Caligari? Doctor Caligari, sure. Yeah. Uh, F. W. Murnau, and there's a, uh, a lot. A lot of great directors came from that. Uh, from that movement, uh, there's another one that we watched in film school called Sunrise, uh, which I imagine uh, if you're interested, check it out because. Uh, they are something to be viewed, and it's also something when you don't have constant dialogue, you know. Because again, we've relied on that too much, and and a lot of movies have become plays. Really, they're just it's more about yeah. the dialogue and this and that. Where there, you forget like you're you have a visual element that you can rely on to tell the story, and it, it can be much more impactful. Uh, another one that we had to study in film school was uh, Joan of Arc. And I yeah. that, but that was a very, uh, it's quite a striking looking film. So anyway, yes, there's a, I can see that him being not into, you know, wanting to make more mainstream stuff. Of course he's, he, his taste would seem a lot more fringe to me, but that makes sense. Yeah. So, and I think there are even some, maybe some, uh, I forgot there were some big film, I'm sure, of course, some pe- big people in the film department. I forgot who they were at the time mm-hmm. he went to film school in 64, 65 right. ish. Um, but yeah, from, from everything I've seen, it was, uh, I think, so in the Oliver Stone film, there's a, a somewhat facsimile reproduction yeah. that they sort of did as close to uh, what they could as possible or what they thought. Because even if you look at, I think, uh, when Oliver Stone was making the movie, he dug through the UCLA archives to mm-hmm. see if he could find any copy of anything that existed from Morrison and right. came up short. So he couldn't find anything. Yeah. So he had tried to do a shot-for-shot remake. And based off of keyboardist Ray Manzarek, who was also in film school with Morrison at the time, mm-hmm. was in the same exact class. Uh, Ray Manzarek actually said that it was, uh, he claims it's very similar to the original project that Morrison did, uh, oh, a close okay. re- uh, recreation. So apparently in the shot you're talking about in the film, he it shows uh-huh. Morrison sort of walking, reading a book. And you sort of see him just That's sort of faltering, right. almost like he's walking along a curve. And then he walks past the camera and then the camera just sort of goes and it pans down. It just pans yeah. to the side and you see like the streets below. Was that in the movie? Was that in, that was in movie? the stone movie? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. So yeah, I'd heard of that anecdote before the movie came out. I know. Uh, and I'd of course, uh, since then forgotten that was in there, but I think I'd, I'd of course seen in the movie, but I, I can't remember that, the uh, that anecdote, uh, I'd heard, you know, back in the, uh, uh, Jesus would be the uh, late eighties. Yeah, so I can't remember when that when that film came. When did that film come out? It came out ninety one. Okay, so I'm pretty sure that I'd uh, yeah I'd heard that because uh, I was out of school by then. And that's about when I'd heard it. So it's interesting that it showed up. It's always fun to when you hear these uh, stories and you think they might be apocryphal. That uh, and then there's some kind of confirming proof to them. It's like, well, no, that was that turned out to be real. So that's interesting. But yeah, so like I said, somebody. The way that we did is that you own all your films, so you can do whatever you want with them. I just recently had a, a friend of ours and Rich Hannum finally digitize one of his Super 8 films and send it to us, and it's a real hoot. Uh, it's like a little time capsule to go back and 
and see yourselves in your college days and just the uh, because we all ended up acting in each other's films. That's the other thing. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I would love if you ever do pull out the the old Super H and you want to get those those transferred. That would but that'd be a fun watch. I'll give I'll give another little excerpt here. This is from Paul Ferrara, and he wrote about Morrison. And here's another thing about Morrison. He was a he was a very knowledgeable person. He he could very well be said as was a bad student, and he mm-hmm. didn't he didn't apply himself. And I don't think he listened as much. And one of the most important right. things, of course, as I know you will know, when working with uh, with Super Eight film or any film like this, yeah. is splicing and making sure you get good clean splices and that the film is well right. put together and all that stuff and and the ins and outs of this. So uh, this is a quote from Paul Ferrara from his book, mm-hmm. Flash of Eden, who's a good friend of friend of Jim Morrison filmed their, their movie, A Fish of Friends, a lot of concert footage. Jim's student film from our UCLA years had caused a buzz that wasn't necessarily all good. His print had fallen apart during the screening. In essence, the professor claimed that Jim was a bad filmmaker because of this faulty editing. In retrospect, I would have to say that it was a bad call on the teacher's part to come down on him so heavy. The visuals of Jim's films are vivid in my mind today. He turned the camera on his own crew. They were in Phil Alino's parents' house, drinking and smoking grass. Someone rolled a joint and they passed it around. They were high and the camera was handheld. The girlfriend of one of the crew stripped down to her undies and climbed on top of the TV. She was dancing slowly and was threatening to take it all off. The program on the television just happened to be a documentary on Hitler's army marching into Paris. The combination of the semi-nude girl dancing and the Nazis marching is unforgettable. He was being free, letting the situation develop and capturing the moments on film. It was so pure, so his editing was not so good. His eye and his creativity made up for it. And Paul Ferrara, I'd love to interview him one day. He's still out there. Shot some amazing footage for The Doors, some of the most well-known footage. But yeah, that was his his take on Morrison. Okay, and so we we got through that portion. Um, But one thing I wanted to talk about was... Uh, the excerpt from Fort's book, his take on inhabitants from other worlds coming to our planet Mm -hmm. from the Book of the Mm -hmm. Damned. If I say I conceive of another world that is now in secret communication with certain esoteric inhabitants of this earth, I say I conceive of still other worlds that are trying to establish communication with all the inhabitants of this earth. I fit my notions to the data I find. That is supposed to be the right and logical and scientific thing to do. But it is no way to approximate to form, system, organization. Then I think I conceive of other worlds and vast structures that pass us by, within a few miles, without the slightest desire to communicate, quite as tramp vessels pass many islands without particularizing one from another. Then I think I have data of a vast construction that has often come to this earth, dipped into an ocean, submerged there for a while, then going away. Why? I'm not absolutely sure. How would an Eskimo explain a vessel sending ashore for coal, which is plentiful upon some Arctic beaches, though of unknown use to the natives, then sailing away with no interest in the natives? Yes, and and that was one of the passages. I think y'all read part of that on the on your episode on him. That mm-hmm. was so fascinating. The last sentence of just the the Eskimo, you know, the ex, ex, Eskimo explanation, right, uh, right, was so interesting. There's some people who remote viewers and other people who have claimed that there are, let's say, mining operations going on on the dark side of the moon where there are 
aliens that just they're just doing their business. They're actually they're do they're doing mining and they don't care to interact with us at all. They just want the helium three or whatever uh, minerals that they're mining on the moon. They don't care to interact or teach us anything. And we don't notice them. But some people, again, who uh, who have inside channels have claimed this, that there are things going on on the moon. And, and uh, people who have claimed interaction with other aliens say that uh, they don't get an, any sense of why they're doing the things that they do. They have their own reasoning. They have uh, their own missions, their own purposes that are maybe totally un say not understandable by any human because it's not a human motivation. We have things that we do for our survival and for our profit and which are all pretty base kind of things, you know, again, just, yeah, just, just, yeah, just for profit or, or survival or what we need to do and trampling on other folks as well doing it. But in this case, you may not even understand why they do the things they do, but their, their ripples are felt. I think is that the, the, what I get from this passage is that, it could be different groups, uh, various groups, all coming to do their various things, and they bump into each other. It's all kind of invisible to us, but there are traces. And as uh, as you know, their passage earlier about the lords is that they they give themselves away in very small bits here and there, and we can see weird things happening, which may be just a, a product, a byproduct of whatever they're doing. You know, their own goals and and projects coming down here and we have really no way to analyze any of this as he says uh, you know yeah we were talking about before the logical and scientific and right thing to do but there's no way to gauge uh, form system organization of all this and uh, again i don't think uh, you know we'll ever probably get to have that knowledge and i think that was frustrating to charles fort i'm not sure how morrison would have felt about it other than Maybe he was more at uh, at peace with it or just like, well, I'll just write about this and write poetry and make music and and it'll be there'll be little Easter eggs in there and that'll be uh, that'll be enough. And this leads us right down the trail of something we've already been talking about, but it's, I think something that we can end uh, end on and and mm-hmm. ben, before we get into Jim Morrison's own own personal mm-hmm. experience. Yeah, yeah. But is the paranormal because it, it just leads us further down the trail of the paranormal and something of legend that has you know grown around Jim himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Fort's works really run the gambit, including in this. I'm going to quote this Wikipedia sure. article, just listing some of the things that his uh, his works cover. Anything from reported events, including teleportation, which is a term Fort is generally credited with the meaning, mm-hmm. falls of frogs, fishes, and in, inorganic materials, spontaneous human combustion. Ball lightning, a term explicitly used by Fort, poltergeist events, unaccountable noises and explosions, levitation, unidentified flying objects, unexplained disappearances, giant wheels of light in the oceans, and animals found outside their normal ranges. He offered many reports of -of out-of-place artifacts, strange items found in unlikely locations. He was also perhaps the first person to explain strange human appearances and disappearances by the hypothesis of alien abduction. And he was an early, even an early proponent of the extraterrestrial hypothesis, specifically suggesting that strange lights or objects sighted sighted in the night skies might be alien spacecraft, which if there's not a topic that's so pertinent to today, Mm. especially Mm -hmm. with what you're seeing on Twitter. (laughs) um, So, so, I mean, that's where, and we get to Morrison's own experience, which uh, his experience was one that's documented in the Oliver Oliver film uh, movie as, as well. Happened in Albuquerque, New Mexico, 1947. 
And it was note, actually uh, noted in his song, Peace Frogs, in a poem that eventually ended up being turned into the ghost song for his American Prayer album in 78. Well, it's, it, it's the excerpt is Indians scattered on dawn's highway bleeding. Ghosts crowd the young child's fragile eggshell mind. And the story goes that Morrison was on, you know, I, I may just insert the clip here, but yeah. Morrison was going down the highway and as a kid in, in, in New Mexico. And they came across an overturned truck. Had to be a truck full of Indians that a wreck that they had had. Some of them were bleeding right. out on the highway, seemed um, seemed injured, and and you know, yeah. There's a conspiracy behind it too. But they had some sort of official there, sort of directing traffic, saying, "Hey, you uh-huh. can come on through." And Jim said that he looked over to the side and he saw one of the Indians on the side of the highway bleeding. Yeah, and almost like the soul, or possibly the multiple souls of the Indians, jumped and leapt into his body. And from that point Ooh. forward, he had that inside of him. Um, Wait, you're talking about Jim. They, the spirits jumped into five-year-old Jim's body. Yes. Wow. Yeah. That's what he claimed. And crowd, crowd, ghost, crowd, the young child's fragile eggshell mind. And that they is, just, a, yeah, that's an autobiographical account that Jim had. Yeah. Just give me a second. It's not a lot. It's not a long audio. Sure. Let me just see if I can find it. Well, he looked very, you know, you had to really look at him. They're know? talking about some yeah, officer of the family. I really looked at him. You know, the first time him. I discovered death, me and my uh, mother and father, I'm not sure if a sister was there, whether she was alive or not, and a grandmother and a grandfather were driving through the desert at dawn. And a truckload of Indian workers had either hit another car or just, you know, I don't know what happened. But there were Indians scattered all over the highway, bleeding to death. Mm. So we, the car pulls up and stops. And it's my first reaction to death, because up to then I was just going, you know, picking seeds out of the cotton fields, going, yeah, well. How old are you? I must have been about four, by approximately. Up to then, man, my whole trip was, the, that locks the car door when you push the thing, and boop, you know, or you can look out the window and ooh. And, uh, man, I can't even remember if I'd seen a movie, man. And they're just lying all over the road, bleeding to death, man. What did they hit? They were in one of those trucks, man, and it fell over, and they were just scattered all over the highway, bleeding. You didn't see what they hit? No, we came along, you know, after it happened. So they pulled the car up, and they stopped. And uh, I'm just a kid, you know, so I have to stay in the car with the women, you know. The cats go back there. My father and my grandfather go back, you know, check it out. And that was my first reaction to death. And I... I don't know whether I'm crazy or what, but I had the feeling when that happened. Like, I didn't want to look back. Like, I'm just this little... Like a child, it's like a flower, man. His head is just floating the breeze, man. But the reaction I get now, thinking about it, looking back, 
is that possibly the soul of one of those Indians, or maybe several of them, just ran over and just jumped into my mm. brain. I can do it. And they're still in there. Because you saw them, man. I didn't see nothing, man. You know what I saw? I saw artificial flowers, man. I saw artificial snow. And like when the bull is getting gored, imagine it if you did it like cartoon style with little streamers coming and going. No, all I saw was just, you know, like a super heavy funny, fucking, uh, funny red paint and people lying around. Oh, but I'm I'm sitting there and I know something's happening because I can dig the vibrations of the people around me, you know, who I think are very heavy because they're my parents and all that, and grandparents. Everything's real secure and, you know, the uh, glove compartment, you know. And all of a sudden I just realized that uh, they were just little screaming, creamy, creeps in the face of reality and that they didn't know what was happening any more than I did. That was the first time I tasted fear. But yeah, yeah, that's that's his his retelling of the experience. Wow. Well, what do you think of that? It's one, for me, it's interesting just to hear his voice because he's always singing mostly when I hear him. You know, yeah, yeah. And, and you're not hearing him so much in documentary material. But uh, so it's odd knowing him and then going back in time to that moment where it just sounds like he's uh, – who was who he with or who he, who was he telling the story to, do you know? You know, I'm not 100%. It was some – I think one of his friends had a tape recorder at the time was just, I don't know, okay. randomly recording a conversation. It wasn't an interview, I don't believe. Right, right. No, it sounds like that's what I'm saying. It, it just sounds like maybe you're just sitting around in someone's uh, basement drinking beers and telling a story. And uh, except that one's pretty wild, but not so much, I would say, different or that even that out there for that time. It was an out the what I was trying to uh, explain earlier was that it was a more out there time. It was a wilder, groovier time. And these kinds of experiences, people, depending on who you talk to, of course, and it's still the same today, but uh, it wasn't as uh, immediately frowned upon within your own circles. Certainly the older establishment types would not know what to make of that perhaps. And, you know, maybe even people like his father and grand- grandfather. Uh, but just you know, a lot of people were talking about souls and spirituality and uh, the age of Aquarius and all that during that time. But that's pretty wild. And I didn't recall, again, you'd uh, introduced me to this story or the, the details of it, but not that uh, he also said, and they're still there today. Yeah. So that's an interesting aspect in that he didn't think they, they jumped into him and never left. Yeah. And I guess, you know, talking about that though, the really two th- last things I can think of is that do you think, and this is my question to you, I guess, after sort of talking about the topic and discussing it, do you think maybe that that incident had a significant impact on Jim later trying to interpret the meaning, I guess, of things or find a meaning for what happened with him discovering Fort's work and being so 
heavily invested in it? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, and you might ask me this after, like, how has it impacted us on the show? I think maybe for us and a lot of people like Jim Morrison is these strange things you experience. And again, we haven't experienced so many strange things, but we liked hearing about them and reading about them. Uh, is that you come across these things, and in Jim Morrison's case, as a five-year-old, like I said, the first time he experienced death in this way. But it's not just death. I mean, we've seen, uh, you know, you might be that young and see a pet die or uh, an elder relative or maybe an accident even. But the experience that he felt something, uh, well, the souls of the uh, the victims of this crash jump into him, that was something that made it even much more impactful you know, that put the uh, icing on the cake, you could say. And I think with Fort, what happens is that, as I was saying, is that you read about these things, you're interested, you're curious to know more, or you experience them yourself in some capacity. And then you come across Fort's writing. It's like, yeah, here's this guy who collected uh, for most of his life stories like this. We also had an interest in it and also had some thoughts about what might be going on where you didn't read about that from anyone else, really. And so, uh, like I said, I would come across these things in like, you know, time life, the sets of books on ghosts and yeah. uh, paranormals and, and strange stories as uh, we've ought to talk about in the show and how we got into this or it could have been in search of. And you get, your curiosity gets piqued and then you find a whole book of this stuff and or you hear about it. It's like, wait a second. Uh, he was the first one uh, to talk about, you know, or at least put into writing other than local newspaper clippings where he got it. Of course, he could be everywhere at once. He's getting this also from local news. And like I said, uh, he often looked at uh, scientific reports and uh, scho- uh, scholarly papers for his information and data that he gathered, as well as, uh, you know, uh, just wherever else he could get it. And of course, it's obviously pre-internet days, but uh, so I commend him on that. But he took the time to compile all of them into one place as much as he could, or the more interesting and more unexplainable things that he came across. And so like with Morrison, it's like, well, here's a bit of a kindred spirit in that this guy's also interested in this stuff, and he's taken the trouble to put all these wondrous things into a book. And so I think uh, you didn't get a whole lot of that back when uh, Morrison was a young man in the 60s and now of agency, as they could say, and out on his own and able to uh, freely look at uh, and explore stuff that whatever he wanted to. And here he makes a connection with this uh, with this author from the 20s and 30s. And so that, uh, and again, that's uh, to his date, that's only maybe a little less than, uh, you know, 20 years later, because uh, we're talking about, uh, or, or actually, you know, 30 years later, it's not all that long ago. It's another foreign generation to him, uh, certainly, but he's looking at all these stories. It's like, yeah, this guy was out there, way out there, man, groovy. And, you know, he's... He's, uh, you know, again, you didn't have a whole lot uh, of other places to turn for this kind of material. So there's a connection in that he's an unconventional thinker like Morrison. And it doesn't matter what era. I I think whatever era you're from, you appreciate that in the generations past and the upcoming generations of just this uh, thinking outside of the box, the unconventional, not mainstream, everything is fine, don't look here kind of uh, mindset. You look at it as... Uh, let's look into this stuff. Let's examine it. And it seems to me always, it always has been Morrison was very self introspective. Like he wanted to examine his own feelings and how he thought about stuff and, and put that in a song. And a lot of people who would, uh, you need some context. Cause I think a lot of people 
would uh, not really wonder what his poetry was about. It just didn't make much sense to them. I remember when I was real young, of course, we talked about like, well, what does Riders in the Storm mean? And it's like, oh, that was a story about, uh, you know, uh, these uh, young boys that were sleeping in a ditch and, and a car careened off and, you know, didn't see them and ran off the highway and they, they were killed. And so you, that's part of at least back then when I was growing up is that you tried to, uh, you had all these examinations of a story, but you didn't have the internet. It was just like, oh, my so-and-so read an article in Rolling Stone or so-and-so came across this interview. And uh, that's also part of the legend and lore behind a lot of these you know, great uh, rock icons of the 70s, of the 60s and 70s is that that's what you're left with, these legends and what they kn- are known for and by. Uh, from their peers at the time that that knew them. So, yeah, so I, I think uh, at least with Fort for us, it's, uh, you know, we were interested in this. And before we even knew about Charles Fort, you, you have this interest, you want to talk about it, you do a little reading and research, and then you come across like, this guy's already done it. This guy has been into this. And you owe, you realize in hindsight and retrospect that you owe a lot of uh, what you're doing now, at least with a podcast, to Charles Fort, who was one of the first to collect this into writing. And uh, you got to give the guy props for that. It's just, he was one of the first and also uh, blazed the trail in a lot of ways for, for what we do uh, and, and, having it, having, and having done it so long ago. So yeah. nothing's new under the sun, as they say. I'm sure somebody else uh, collected all this kind of knowledge. It just didn't, he, he didn't reach a... Uh, a zenith in popular culture as Charles Ford had. Yeah. And I think that's a great place to end it, you know, talking about Ford and uh, Mm -hmm. he's, I mean, his work's still pertinent, pertinent today and something that I think we can definitely, some of his thoughts and some of the Morrison, you know, Jim Morrison's thoughts and the way they process information and it's something we can carry over today. Something we can look at is just because we don't necessarily understand something doesn't mean we should just throw it off or cast it to the side as, ah, you know, it is what it is. I think that the the studying of anomalies and the looking into things that are anomalous is a whole be, a whole beast within itself. Like, you right. know, if something's anomalous, you would think, why study the thing that happens? You know, ninety nine point nine percent of the time, why not study the thing that happens the point one percent of the time? Yeah. But scientifically, if you, how can you? And I guess that goes back to that whole thought process. But I think there's a lot to glean in that. And for us, with, for this episode, mm-hmm. you know, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. Uh, sure. You can find Astonishing Legends on Twitter. Uh, you can find them by searching for podcasts. They're they're easy to be found. They even got if you and it, when, if in doubt, go to astonishinglegends dot com. Everything's right. there. Patreon, the works. Uh, we do have a website, and uh, all our info is there. Plus a lot of uh, uh, side info. If the topic is uh, something you're interested in, we have a lot of all the links that we came across in our research, plus photos if we have any, and uh, just all the extra good stuff. So that's a good place to start. And when people ask, uh, what should I dive into? Just find a topic that interests you. Just like what we've been talking about tonight. Yeah. And there's blog posts too of, if, even if they haven't done an episode of it, Tess has probably done a blog post about it in that's the, true. in the, cause she does 31 blog posts every October. God knows how she does that, but uh, I commend yeah. her for that. Um, <laughs> well, thank you for us for coming on. All right, friend. Thank you so much. Thank you again to Forrest Burgess. You can find Astonishing Legends at astonishinglegends.com. You can find them on Facebook by searching for Astonishing Legends and join their official podcast private group. You can follow them on Twitter at A-S-T-O-N-S-H-N-G-L-E-G-N-D-S and you can find their podcast by searching for Astonishing Legends wherever you get podcasts. I also want to give a special shout out to Astonishing Legends co-host Scott Philbrook. 
I did a special episode with him on Jimi Hendrix and UFOs exclusively on their Patreon page, which you can find at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. You can find this podcast on Twitter at The Doors Pod and on Facebook by searching Opening the Doors. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for guests, you can send an email to openingthedoorspod at gmail.com. I want to give a special thanks to podcast consultant Jim Cherry, who authored The Doors Examined and The Last Stage. I also want to thank The Mild Equator for information used throughout the show. Music for this podcast was done by Christian Cornejo of the Jimbo Tribute Band from South America. I hope to meet you back here in two weeks when we discuss The Doors and the 1965 demo tape. But until then, keep the doors open and the music loud. Whoa!